Good morning, River City. As Pastor Jake said, my name is Josh Waite. My wife is Katie. Kate, you raise your hand. Uh, and we lead a CG here at River City. A couple things set our CG apart, maybe. We have six chickens in the backyard and popsicles every week. So if you're new in town, I think the decision is pretty clear. You should come have popsicles and hang out with chickens. Um, so Psalm 11, I'm going to jump right in. In Psalm 11, David finds himself in a familiar situation. Danger, disaster are at his doorstep. Today, when we think of David, he almost seems untouchable, right? He's a giant slayer, the man who presided over Israel's golden age. But the historical reality is quite different. At every turn, David's reign appeared precarious. Powerful enemies without, family dysfunction within. David was well acquainted with distress, danger, looming disaster. And in this context, he writes Psalm 11. So I'm going to read that in a minute, but first I want to begin with a question. When you feel threatened, when danger is close at hand, where do you go? Where do you find refuge? Do you remember the Lord's promises? Or do you seek refuge somewhere else? Now, I'm not asking us what do we believe or what do we know to be true. Those are different questions and they might have different answers. But instead, I'm asking in a moment of distress and danger, where does your heart go? Where do you find refuge? What we'll see this morning is that David, in one of his better moments, right? He's far from perfect, but in one of his better moments, David proclaims, the Lord is my refuge. So this morning, my main point is that like David, in his better moment, we too can have peace and hope in trials of every kind. We too can have peace and hope when we're threatened by remembering the promises of God. Specifically, this is my first slide, by the way. Specifically, we can have peace and hope by remembering God's promises to dwell with his people, to fight for his people, and to satisfy his people. Okay, so that's where we're going. I'll read Psalm 11 and pray for us, and we'll jump in. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? To this advice, David responds, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. 
fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. Lord, we ask that you would be here, that you would be present. God, I pray that you would grow us in knowledge, but also do something more than that. Will you change our hearts? Holy Spirit, will you come and take up your word and with it make us new? This is your work. We can't do it. We need you. So please be here. Make much of yourself for your glory and our good. Amen. In the 2018-2019 academic year, my family lived at Lake Traverse Reservation. My family lived at Lake Traverse Reservation. It's about an hour and a half south of here. Um, home to the Sistan and Wapton bands of Dakota people. We lived there for a year as part of my dissertation research, um, doing a PhD in linguistics, studying the Dakota language and the people who speak it. We moved to Lake Traverse from Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay. It's a 22-hour drive, and we made it with two small children, a U-Haul packed full of everything we own, not exactly a restful family vacation. Right? And yet, during this journey, Kate and I both enjoyed this remarkable sense of peace and hope. In many ways, God had made it abundantly clear that the path we were walking was one he prepared ahead of us. He had opened doors that should never have been open, given us favor with people who might have hated us instead, provided a home, provided financial gifts. I mean, we made that stressful journey just certain God is with us, he's fighting for us, and he's more than enough. Fast forward eight months. It's February 2019. Kate and I grew up in Florida. Okay. We had attended many churches only to find that the gospel wasn't really proclaimed. We had pursued friendships with many people only to find that we didn't share Jesus in common. And Kate and I both longed for the encouragement and support of Christian brothers and sisters. At times, we despaired in our loneliness. And in this context, I found that a good day of work, a good day of research, left me feeling thrilled. But when a bad day came, as they inevitably do, I was crushed, right? utterly defeated. And looking back on that season, I see now that in a prolonged time of distress, I forgot about the Lord's commitment to be with us, to fight for us, to satisfy us, and I began to seek refuge in my work. Okay? In Psalm 11, in Psalm 11, David finds himself in a dangerous situation. Right? The wicked are 
close at hand. They're poised to attack. They've done everything but deliver the death blow. And he receives some advice. Take refuge, not in the Lord, but in the mountains. Find peace and security by putting physical distance between yourself and your adversaries, right? It's interesting David receives this advice not from some wicked enemy who hates him. It likely comes from a close friend or a trusted ally. This is well-intentioned but wrong-headed advice. And the situation for us today is not terribly different. We find ourselves in a world with many potential places of refuge. In many, sometimes overt and other times subtle or implicit ways, we receive advice to seek refuge in places that are not the Lord. We're advised to find refuge in our finances. Men, we're often implicitly at least encouraged to take refuge in our work, our professional accomplishments. Women, in many ways, you are implicitly told to take refuge in your appearance, in your ability to gain the approval of onlooking men. Our parents were counseled to take refuge in our children, how cute and intelligent and mature they are. In a world full of potential places of refuge, in a world full of well-intentioned advice, David begins this psalm by proclaiming, the Lord is my refuge. So I want to pause for a moment and consider this word refuge. And the Hebrew word simply means a place of safety or protection from harmful forces. A place of safety or protection from harmful forces. The Lord is my refuge. This is actually a refrain that occurs again and again throughout the Psalms. 27 separate times, David and other psalmists proclaim, the Lord is my refuge. In doing this, they express their confidence in God's divine protection. And this idea is conveyed not only with the word refuge, but with many other related words we find throughout the Psalms that the Lord is my rock, my shield, my fortress, my shelter, my stronghold, my shadow. 117 separate times in the Psalms, David and other psalmists proclaim their confidence in the Lord's divine protection. Where does this confidence come from? We've all been in distressing situations, and you know that confidence like this, while it's a virtue, is hard to come by. It's in short supply. Where does this confidence come from? To answer this question, we actually have to look back at 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord makes a covenant with his chosen king, with his messianic anointed king, David. 
This is the all-important pretext for Psalm 11, but also for much of the Psalms. Certainly the high point of David's life, and it's the crescendo of redemptive history, at least at the time that the Psalms were written. Okay. So I want to quickly look back at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and pay attention to the promises that the Lord makes to David. <clears throat> and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. As O. Palmer Robertson, in a wonderful book, which Devin is always recommending that we read, it's called The Flow of the Psalms by O. Palmer Robertson. He shows that in this passage, God makes promises to David through the metaphor of a house. Okay? So first, in <clears throat> verse 13, we find God saying that he will build a house for David. Okay? And by this, he means a perpetual dynasty. David and his descendants will reign over Israel and all the nations. God promises a perpetual dynasty for David. Okay. In the next verse, God makes another promise using the word house. He says that one of David's descendants will build a house for the Lord. And by this, God promises a permanent dwelling place for himself among the people of God. Perpetual dynasty for David, a permanent dwelling place for the Lord among his people. And in verse 16, and this language emphasizes that David's perpetual dynasty and the Lord's permanent dwelling place are not separate things at all, but instead they will be united. Right? The kingdom, the reign of the Lord and the kingdom and reign of David will be united. So these are the promises that David has in the back of his mind as he writes Psalm 11. This is the crescendo of redemptive history in his time. So what I'd like to do is look at the rest of Psalm 11 and let's pay attention to how David's response to the well-intentioned advice he receives, how David's response is informed by the promises the Lord has given him. And we'll also see that all of these promises aren't just for David or the people of Israel a couple thousand years ago. These promises are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. So they're available for us today too. Okay, so Psalm 11, verse 4. David begins his response. He says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Have you ever been in a distressing situation and been comforted 
by someone's presence. Have you ever been comforted by someone's presence in a distressing situation? Growing up, I played baseball in the fall and spring. And I was always confident in the field. If the ball was hit to me, I was sure I, I knew what to do. I could make a play. But when it was my turn to bat, it was a different story. I would step up to the plate full of anxiety. I did that awful thing where you contemplate absurd worst-case scenarios. Uh, what if I get hit by a pitch? Probably in the face. Uh, what if I swing and let go of the bat? Probably hit somebody. I'll get thrown in jail. <laughs> I'm just trying to play baseball. Right? I was so nervous when I stepped up to the plate, but this was especially the case when my dad couldn't make a game, on the rare occasions when my dad couldn't attend. And I remember one time when I was probably 10 years old, my dad wasn't able to attend the game, and it was my turn to bat. And it just so happened that the pitcher for the other team was a full-grown man-child. He's a large human being. I was terrified. My knees were shaking. I was short of breath. My jaw was tight. Just before, just as he was getting ready to deliver the first pitch, from somewhere in the crowd, I heard my dad's voice encouraging me. My dad was able to attend the game after all. In that moment, I let out a deep, sigh of relief. Right, my legs quit shaking, my jaw relaxed. And maybe something terrible would happen, but at least my dad was there. He would know what to do. Right? In verse 4, David comforts himself by remembering that the Lord is with him. The Lord dwells in his temple with his beloved people. The same Lord who reigns sovereign from heaven is with his people. Right? David faces a threat with peace and hope by remembering God's promise to dwell with his people. And this promise isn't just for David. It's actually fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, who, after all, is God with us who humbled himself, who took on the form of a man to be with his broken and lost people. And after the resurrection, after his ascension, when Jesus goes to sit at the right hand of God the Father, he doesn't leave us as orphans. He doesn't abandon us. No, with haste, he continues his presence and his work among us sending the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus has promised to dwell with his people, we too can face every trial with peace and hope. That's my first point. The Lord promises to dwell with his people so we can face every threat, every danger with peace and hope. So, moving on, David continues his response to this well-intentioned advice in 
verse 5 and 6. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Whoa. This is strong language. It's a picture of complete and utter destruction. Okay. Have you ever been in a distressing situation and found yourself comforted by remembering you have a strong ally? Have you ever been comforted by remembering you have a strong, fierce ally who will fight on your behalf? Growing up, especially in middle school and high school, it would be a dramatic understatement to say I was not an especially well-behaved kid. And I often found myself, for good reason, in the dean or principal's office, right? But there were a couple rare occasions, rare occasions, when it was my reputation and not my conduct, which got me in trouble, right? A couple occasions where it was my reputation and not my conduct. Uh, some teacher happened upon the aftermath of a mischievous deed of some sort, and they understandably, though inaccurately, assumed, surely this is Josh Waite's handiwork, right? One such occasion happened when I was 13. I was in the dean's office pleading my case, defending myself as well as I could. I really was innocent on this occasion. And she wasn't buying it, right? And eventually she picked up the phone name was Dean Owen. She was about five foot nothing but terrifying, right? She picks up the phone and looks at me and says, Joshua, I'm calling your mother. And of course, she meant this as a threat. But for me, it was a sweet relief. My mom is imperfect, but... I never doubted as a child that she was more than willing to fight fiercely for her children. A courageous, brave woman who would fight tooth and nail. She was well acquainted with injustice and didn't want her children to taste even a drop of it. I was comforted to know that my mom was coming, at least on that occasion. David reassures himself. David finds comfort, peace, and hope in a trial by remembering the Lord's commitment to fight for him. And this promise is fulfilled once again in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus fights for his beloved people, but in perhaps the most unintuitive way by climbing on a cross. Right? By climbing on a cross, Jesus endures bravely, fiercely, he endures the burning coals and the scorching wind of God's wrath on your behalf. 
by climbing on a cross, by becoming weak and vulnerable, Jesus does battle on your behalf with your enemies, sin and death. When we remember the cross, we see not only a humble and gentle and loving Savior, but also a fierce one who is so devoted to fighting for his people, even to the point of death. In Romans 8, Paul makes this point, and he reflects on the implications for the church today. And this is what the Apostle Paul says, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Christians, we can face trials with peace and hope because Jesus has promised to fight for us. And we look to the cross, we see him fighting for us, and he fights for us still today. So that's my second point. Go to the next slide. We can face, uh, the Lord promises to fight for his people so we can face every threat with peace and hope. My third point, um, in verse 7, King David concludes his response to the well-intentioned advice he receives. This is what he says. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is kind of a a perplexing way to end the response. The upright shall behold his face. I was confused by it at first until I followed some of the cross references. And one of the things we find is that throughout the Psalms, the language of beholding the Lord's face is a metaphor for satisfying intimacy with God. Okay. So this is especially clear in Psalm 17, verse 15. King David says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I wake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David concludes his response to this well-intentioned advice by remembering the Lord's promise to satisfy him. And of course, this promise is not just for David or the people of Israel a couple thousand years ago, but it's fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
I want to conclude with this question. Have you ever seen the worth and value of one person by seeing the response they elicit in another person? It's a strange question. An example would help. We get a sense of a woman's beauty and character when we look at the way her husband adores her, right? We can get a sense of one person's worth and value by seeing the response they provoke or elicit in another person. And this is actually how I first encountered the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Not by seeing him directly, so to speak, but rather by watching someone else adore him. I was 18. I was invited to a Bible study. I have no recollection of what the leader talked about. The content of his speech, I couldn't tell you one word. Here's what I remember. I was in a place of brokenness. I was lost. I was terribly, um, well, I was not content. And this man seemed satisfied in Jesus. My first real glimpse of the beauty and glory of Jesus was by watching another person satisfied in him. So my third point, we can face trials, threats, dangers, with peace and hope because the Lord promises to satisfy his people. But this is where remembering God's promises, living in them, taking refuge in them, this is not merely a matter of our personal faith journey. As important as that is, Remembering the promises of God is not just about your contentment or your sense of peace. Instead, this is a missional endeavor. All of us have audiences that observe our lives. And when we endure trials with peace and hope by remembering the Lord's promises, to dwell with us and fight for us and satisfy us, you proclaim the worth and the value and the glory of Jesus. So just in conclusion, where we've been, the Lord's promises are sure so we can face every threat with peace and hope. The Lord promises to dwell with us, to fight for us, and to satisfy us. And this isn't just for your benefit, though that's important. This isn't just about your contentment amidst trial. Instead, there's a remarkable missional opportunity here. Your satisfaction in Jesus may speak louder than any eloquent words you can muster. At the very least, it will open the door for you to speak some of those words. I'd also just like to conclude by saying that if you're listening either in person or online and maybe you don't know the Lord or you're not walking with him or you kind of sort of know him. Maybe you've been 
let down by the refuges that this world offers, you found them shallow and empty and impermanent. There is no refuge like Jesus, no sure place of safety. Uh, trials and hardships will certainly still come, but you'll be satisfied. I'll pray for us. <clears throat> Jesus, I love you. There is no one like you. Thank you for the precious promises you've given us. Thank you for your devotion to be with us, to fight for us, and to satisfy us. Oh Lord, will you give us grace and strength to run to you, to find refuge in you in every trial and hardship, that we might taste and see that you're good and that there's no one like you, that we might proclaim for others that there is no one like King Jesus. God, give us wisdom and discernment to encourage one another this week, to speak your promises over one another. I pray that you'd receive glory as we trust you during every trial. Amen.